0: Hello, and welcome to The a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. I'm your host, Zach Treball, and coming up, I chat with Michael Claypool, winemaker for Portland's Clay Pigeon Wines and one of my wine soulmates. But first, a thought. I recently compiled my list of the 12 best wines I tried this year, my wine case for 2016, as you will, and I have to say, putting that list together was quite a challenge. I was fortunate to try hundreds of amazing wines this year, and narrowing that list down to just 12 caused me quite a bit of trouble. Yet one consistent theme seemed to emerge from the wines I chose. They delivered incredibly elegant finishes. It's easy as a wine drinker to move from sip to sip at a rapid pace. After all, wine is delicious, and often the first few seconds after we put the wine in our mouth are the most flavor packed. Taking the time to savor each sip, to allow it the time to play out, requires discipline and focus, two traits I often lack. Yet it's invaluable as a taster to actually, you know, taste, to give the wine a chance to express itself to let the less immediate flavors and structural elements show themselves, and to enjoy the harmony, or note the disharmony, going on. Each of my 12 wines lingered on the palate for 30 seconds or more, a quality that, beyond almost any other, denotes, well, quality. It's easy to make a wine that packs a punch right at the outset, but making a wine with length, depth, and elegance is a lot harder. It's a challenge that my guest Michael Claypool takes seriously, and an attribute in wines that we both adore. Joining me today on Discoraged is Michael Claypool. He's the owner and winemaker at Clay Pigeon Winery in Portland, Oregon, and uh, a fellow wine lover. Michael, how's it going? Good. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing great, thanks. Uh, so let's start with uh, with the beginning. Which is, uh, how did you first get interested in wine?
1: Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, I think I'd always had a little bit of an interest in wine, even you know when I was uh, first coming of age uh, uh, of drinking, but. I think in that simple way, I always kind of say wine in some ways for, guy, for guys for is kind of like baseball cards. You know, it's adult baseball cards. And so I think there was always a little bit about, you know, vintages and regions and that kind of like esoteric knowledge. But I didn't really start getting kind of professionally involved in, until um, probably like at this point, like 17 years ago uh, when I was living in New York. Um, and it happened that my wife decided she wanted a career change. Um, she decided she wanted to get into the cheese industry. Uh, started doing, uh, interning at a place called artisanal in New York. And then I took that as an opportunity to start studying wine professionally. So I started, um, uh, taking the classes with the WSET uh, at the time, which was in London and, and New York, I think only, you know, that many years ago. So yeah, and it was, and then from there it just kind of kept rolling, you know, kind of testing out different things.
0: I have to say, I, I take your story as both inspiration and a little bit of potential warning, um, my fiance is from Wisconsin and obsessed with cheese, and I think when she listens <laughs> to this, she's going to talk about quitting her very professional job to start uh, being a cheesemaker, which she yeah. already does at home. So I guess I'm going to also start making wine if this exactly. if this is how this thing kind of goes. I guess exactly. it could be worse. Um, there are
1: worse things. There are there. Are, there are.
0: So how did you end up in Portland?
1: So, you know, after, uh, you know, bouncing around a little bit, but, you know, good 10 years in New York and a stint in San Francisco and Chicago – um, I think it was a couple of things. One, um, I, I had a chance in '05 to go out and um, apprentice uh, at a at a winery called Papa Pueto Perry, um, which is in Sonoma, and uh, worked a crush there with them. And kind of got the bug on the making side. You know, at the time I had done the wine retail side at a big place in New York called Astor, and then I had oh. worked uh, at a um, as a sommelier at a uh, pretty awesome restaurant called Blue Hill at Stone Barns uh, in, in upstate and really enjoyed the sommelier light you know the job itself but i think in some ways uh the lifestyle was the part that was a little to be you know my wife very much even though she at that point was running the caves at murray's cheese uh but it was a 95 you know monday to friday and i was basically doing this uh nights and weekends and so we kind of had this after i went and made i was like man maybe the make side is not a bad idea and we kind of played around with that for a bit and Wife's from the West Coast and, you know, I grew up in a pretty rural, you know, kind of environment. So New York was, a, was always uh, thought of as a uh, temporary solution, not a permanent. And so we started thinking about where we wanted to be. And I'd always been a big fan of the Oregon wine country. And, and I think in some ways what I appreciated about Portland was, um, you know, you have Limit Valley. Within 45 minutes, I can be at, a couple, at one of the vineyards that I work with uh, from, you know, the middle of the city, from the, from the winery itself. You know, but also we have access to Walla Walla. We have access down into uh, southern Oregon to kind of get the variety of grapes, um, you know, depending on the style. So I just we just kind of felt it was uh, kind of a nice epicenter and and said, let's let's pack it up and give it a shot.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, one of the great things about Portland uh, is that you can have. All of that incredible wine country experience, especially in the Willamette, um, and still be in the city uh, for dinner uh, that night. Exactly. Which is, which is exactly how I do it uh, most yeah. of the times I go down there. Which not to say staying in wine country isn't lovely, but it is nice to have that incredible proximity. Whereas you know, um, you know, many other parts of the world, the wine country is quite a bit uh, further removed from cities right. or, or even. It's true.
1: I mean, and, and I think that was something like with Seattle. We were big fans and loved Seattle, and I think the main different, the main, you know, separator was two part one, you know, Seattle's a bit more built up and it was a bit more expensive and it was kind of like Portland seemed like it, it still was like the little sister, you know, kind of coming along. And I think the second part was just proximity, you know, like, you know, the, the wines are getting closer to Seattle, but you know, uh, or the grapes I should say, but it's, uh, it's still a pretty good drive if you want to get out to like, you know, quote wine country, you know, for, for the majority of the stuff.
0: Yeah. And you end up having to make that, that difficult decision, Do you like? Do you live in Seattle and then commit to spending many many hours in the car every every year, or do you live closer to the grapes, which cuts down on your commute? But then again, you're living in Eastern Washington, which has its nice parts for sure, but not uh, which is not but it's not a city for sure. Um, So okay, so you you land in Portland, you're 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 going to be making wine obviously anyone who's looking at sourcing fruit from the willamette valley is is looking first and foremost at pinot but i think one of the things that really interested me about your wines is like you didn't see it seems like you didn't see pinot as the end all be all for oregon wine Um, i know you make syrah you make um probably many other things that i'm unaware of Um, yeah how do you how do you as a winemaker balance sort of this imperative of as an oregon winemaker that must mean you make pinot and you do with with all the other things that are interesting um, to play with
1: yeah, I think it's uh, look. I mean, as you said, you know, Pinot is the is what people think of when they think of Oregon. Um, that has that's great because at least people have an idea of what to you know that they even are thinking about. You. Know. The flip side is like that means there's a lot of people making Pinot, uh, and so there are a lot of really nice Pinots being made uh, in the valley, in the city, you know, all all over the state. Um, I think for me, it's it's that you know, Pinot. I think is. Is uh, is kind of one of those grapes that I'll always make because I find it to be possibly one of the hardest things to do. Um, but I think that you know I I like you you know came at this not from a ag background or a, a chemical engineering you know, or chem chem background. I, you know I came at it from really much more of a generalist lover of wine. You know kind of history of wine, typicity, and these kinds of things, and so you know, there's a lot of regions and a lot of styles I've always really, you know, just gravitated to. And so, like I said, having access to these regions, even though they're a bit further, I can still get to those grapes within a day. Um, You know, I started kind of cultivating, um, you know, so, you know, in in Southern Oregon, we, we purchase um, Syrah and Cab Franc. And so we basically work with those. And really, if I kind of trace, you know, the regions for me, it's like Burgundy, Northern Rhone, and um, kind of like, the Chenon region, so Loire, are the three that I've always kind of probably had the most love for, and then um, we work out in in the, the Columbia Gorge, so technically the you know Columbia AVA, but um, on the on the Oregon side, and we basically make a uh, Jura style uh, Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, a lot of old world influence, uh, obviously, on these um, as far as like, and I but I think that again goes back to the way I was just raised, you know, I, I, uh, I think again, I, the wines that I first started trying and really geeking out on were, you know, eighties and nineties, um, uh, French wines, uh, much more than even Italian. And I'm sure if I had started with Italians, I'd probably be looking at, you know, some of the, the grapes there, you know, to kind of start making, you know, the, those kinds of wines. But yeah, so it's been nice. Um, I think that the balance is necessary. I, 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 the biggest fear I have for for Oregon, is that we have become too over dependent on Pinot. Um, you know, as we know, um, moods shift, and it can take very little. Uh, if we take Merlot as our example, to kind of all of a sudden completely tank an industry. So, um, I think Pinot will always be there, um, but I I did want to diversify enough that it it kind of offered other people. And I think also, and this was a, a key thing for me is that when when you're doing an urban winery, you'll kind of notice like. It's um, when people are kind of coming in, not necessarily daily, but definitely let's say like weekly or bi-weekly, uh, and, and enjoying themselves, like, you know, you really kind of need to think about diversity in, in a different way, you know. I don't always want to drink Pinot. I definitely don't always want to drink my own wine. So it's like, okay, well how do we basically give them enough of differences so that they, if it's a, a colder day and they want something a little richer versus it's a nice, you know, uh, lovely summer day and they want something nice and refreshing.
0: Well, and I think it's also, you know, there, there's something to be said about the, an experience that isn't, uh, come into my winery and try my nine different Pinot Noirs, Yeah. Um, and guess what, I also make a rosé of Pinot Noir, and that's about it, or, you know, maybe I make a little Chardonnay right. or Pinot Gris or something, but but really, you know, I, I I certainly understand why that's the direction that many wineries in Oregon go, um, but I think you're right, that there's something about the setting that, that you know, and, and your winery um, or at least the production side of it is also, you know, kind of contained within this larger space that also has cereals, which I don't know. You probably have a better way of describing it than I do. It's part restaurant, part like yeah. bottle shop, part <laughs> I don't know what yeah, exactly. It's, it's, but it's, yeah. but it's great. And it allows you to kind of have that, like, okay, if you don't feel like drinking Pinot Noir, I've got these other wines. And if you don't feel like drinking any of my wines, here are some other wines, which I love. Yeah.
1: yeah and I think, again, like, um, that's a, I think one of those things that when we thought about uh, making like, you know, I moved out here, my thing was, OK, we're, let's move to the city. We don't really know anyone. And then let's uh, you know. But my assumption was, yeah, I'm going to be heading down to the valley and I'm going to be commuting down there. Um, but we didn't really want to move down to the valley because we thought it might be a little too isolating, especially coming from New York. Uh, <laughs> it might be a too jarring. Yeah,
0: New York, so, to New York to Newburgh is a little bit of a that's a yeah, that's a yeah. transition.
1: It is a transition. Uh, that sounds almost like a New Green Acres kind of show. Um, oh, there you go. But the uh, the so I think then we started meeting other urban winemakers um, and realized, oh wait, there's a different model we could do here. And this kind of goes to that other point about why we chose Portland. Portland, at least even ten years ago, you know when we got here, was still kind of everything was kind of rising still. So it's it's it was still. I think it still is, depending on where. Um, possible to have an urban space, but not necessarily be paying such a premium on that, that uh, it just makes it financially, you know, impossible. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, it, it, you know, I'm sure that day will come where it becomes impossible. Um, but it allowed us this opportunity to think, rethink then if we we're going to be in the city, then how can we basically create a space uh, that is more community. And I think for my wife and I, Really, we like when we train our staff. When we really sit and talk to them, we always talk about that. Really, the purpose of cereals and the purpose of clay pigeon is community. It's about getting people into a room, sitting at a table together. Uh, we use a mechanism which is wine and like cheese and food, you know, to do that. But really, what we want is that communal kind of um, atmosphere. And so you're right; it's a mix of like retail, like bottle shop and retail cheese. It's a uh, It's, you know, wine bar, it's event space, uh, it's, you know, got a nice patio. And the idea is really kind of allow people to create a space for themselves in there. Um, And, you know, again, if you're having people that are coming by every, you know, more frequently than I'm on a tour of wineries, then yeah, I mean, that would be crazy in my mind just to sell my own wine. Like, uh, because I want people to, I love wine too much. And and what I am is truly, I think an enthusiast, not an expert. And so I want people to experience. So we might have our wine, but we are definitely going to have stuff from Italy and France and Spain and, you know, stuff from Walla Walla and stuff from California. And if I can get my hands on a cool cab franc from Virginia, I'd love, you know, I put that on the menu.
0: Yeah. I think one of the things that struck me when we, when we first met was, I, I kept asking you questions about your wine and you kept talking about other wines, which to me was like the sign of was, which was just after a, after a several days being in Oregon and, and in wine country and, and enjoying it immensely. Uh, it was kind of refreshing to be like, yeah, you know, uh, Michael makes wine, but he really wants to talk to me about German Riesling. And he really wants to talk to me yeah. about like, you know, crazy Loire Valley, Shannon Blanc. And like, it was not about so much your own wine, which, you know, I mean, is, is really, uh, lovely. And obviously, um, You know, a a huge part of what you do, but but it made me feel a little bit more a a sense of uh, kindred spirits, because I think, you know, any any winemaker who who only drinks their own wine is probably not making as good wine as they could be.
1: Well, and I always yeah. And that was the thing that I even noticed back working in California is that um, I, you know, I just noticed that it seemed that a lot of the people were really myopic. They were very narrow in their point of view of what was like acceptable wine because they often were just drinking theirs and other people near them. And again, you know, look, people can complain about California pinos being really big, and that's fine. Whatever. I don't really have, you know, I think there's a time and place for just about any wine. Um, but I think if that's all you're trying, then eventually you you start to kind of chip away at those edges of things that are kind of quote acceptable. And you know, I always say like the reason why it is important for me as a winemaker to, you know purchase wine from importers and sit down and do tastings and, and constantly is probably is to keep me honest, uh, to re- to remind myself at times how far I still need to go as a winemaker. Um, cause it's really far, like there's some beautiful wine out there and there's phenomenal producers domestic and, and, you know, and foreign, but it's like, um, I think that to me is a really kind of important value I want to try to maintain.
0: Absolutely. So uh, out of curiosity, um, when you, when you kind of get to the point where you're looking to uh, source fruit so you're you're getting yeah. uh, pinot obviously from the Willamette uh, you're getting uh, Syrah and Cap Franc from uh, further south are, are when you're especially looking at those vineyards in southern Oregon are you is it is there competition in the way there there is for Pinot or is it still kind of like when you're going to growers they're like hey look please take these grapes um, um, I, I wonder because I, it seems to me like I'm seeing a little bit more of that of of Syrah of Cap Franc from southern Oregon than than maybe a few years ago
1: yeah. I think, I think it's, it, it, I think right now it is still largely, um, uh, you can get your hands on it. I think like any varietal, um, any variety, like, you, you know, there's going to be competition if it's a good vineyard, <laughs> um, as we know. So, uh, I, I was very lucky through an introduction from our friends at Rogue Creamery, um, we, again, this is the joy of the cheese community, uh, to be introduced uh, to the growers that we get our Syrah. And they actually, after I bought for like a couple of years, that something came up and they're like, oh yeah, we grow Cab Franc, a really small amount of it. You know, we keep it in this cool section of the vineyard, which I didn't even know about. And I was like, can I please have some? And so, you know, it's hard, that is hard to get my hands on uh, because because it it's, you know, it Every year, I ask for just a little bit more, and, and accept that I'm going to get that little bit more. Um, you know, if I wanted to just get Syrah in Southern Oregon, that's pretty easy. Um, but I also think that part of it is, I think you know, again, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, Southern Oregon, I think, was still experimenting with the soils and the and the types to figure out what was the right combo. I think now is starting to hit a bit of a stride, and I think people are figuring out what's what works in their vineyards uh, between Syrah, Tempranillo. You know, getting into some of these bigger grapes, and then also finding the pockets where they can do Pinot still, or even a you know Hellé Gamay, or or a Cab Franc, which we might associate with much cooler climate. But it's a little bit easier. But I still think when you when you find a vineyard, like the first vineyard I really wanted in Southern Oregon. Uh, you know, our friends, David and Carrie at Rogue were like, well, who would you want to work with? And I was like, oh, I want Carpenter, you know, Carpenter Hill. And they're like, oh, yeah, you can't get that. <laughs> and it was just like, so immediately already, it was like, yeah, no, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't really sell anymore." And I was like, OK, fine. Then, uh, you know, so we started just kind of going from there. But, you know, it's um, and I think, again, like people always ask, like, how do you find these people? What on? And I always say, like, some of it is just it's just networking. It's just having connections. And it's a lot of serendipity of like, you know, hey, so and so's got an extra ton of something, and you, and being kind of open to rolling with that, and being like, "Cool, I'll try it." And so, you know, ha, you know, being uh, in the right place, at the right time to be like, "Oh, I didn't know that they were even growing that. I would love to get my hands on that." And then cultivating the relationship.
0: Is there a is there a situation like with the cab franc where you're like, "Oh, yeah, I'll take that," and then you're like, "Now, how the hell do I make cab franc?" Or is it yeah, is it, <laughs> is it just like, were you waiting for that? In some no, moment?
1: I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I'd never made. I mean, here's the thing: I, I had. You know I, where I worked in in Sonoma, they made basically two grapes. They made Pinot Noir and they made Zinfandel because they were on dry creek, so they needed to make some Zend. It's just for the neighborhood. So uh, my hands-on were very was very narrow. I'd never made white wine, um, and uh, so Pinot, I kind of had an idea. And so it, so when I started, I just treated everything like Pinot, mm-hmm. uh, and then you know do a series of controlled experiments on certain things to see. And and now I think I'm you know, and I always say I always do believe that it takes about five vintages five you know to seven to really learn the grapes to kind of figure out what what they want to be when they grow up mm-hmm. um you know i think obviously we're in an interesting phase now where it's a there's a lot of talk about quote natural wine and and uh which I, I at times bristle at and other times you know i i understand and appreciate for me i think if anything what that gets at is i do think that As a winemaker, you can overwhelm and force almost any grape into any style you want it to be um, if you're willing to just like attack it and manipulate it. Um, But I think if you are pretty much one of those that got into it because you love the product and you love the process and you want to make beautiful things, like often, you know, what you're really trying to do is figure out how what these specific grapes want to make. And for instance, I had a, a, a vineyard that I was working with, it was I had Pinot beautiful Pinot, but the Pinot I was making was kind of fighting it. And as much as I tried to change my techniques to let them come through, I realized at a certain point there was a base level of the approach that I have that wasn't working for these grapes. And mm-hmm. so I stopped working with those grapes. Um, so there's a certain point where it's like, what grapes do they, what are these grapes, what kind of wine do they want to make? And then there's also acknowledging like, you can't stop yourself from like the practices or, or the approach that you do. Um, and then that's going to kind of manipulate them, you know, cause you're constantly manipulating, even if you don't think you are. So, you know, uh, it becomes a kind of a yin yang that you have to kind of pay attention to, to figure out like what's the right combo. And I think I'm just now reaching a point that I understand the straw and getting close to the cab front. Cause I've only been working with that for about three, four years. Um, but I think we're getting there so that, yeah, it's been really fun, but you know, it is a little bit always of an experiment and, uh, you know, trial and error, you know, in, in kind of small ways.
0: So let's talk Syrah for a moment because, um, yeah. it's, it, it, I mean, it's, I hate being, I hate, uh, you know, sort of pinning myself down this way, but, but it's possible it's my favorite varietal. Yeah. Um, and I think it is, it is what I love about Syrah is it's so, um, it can be so many things it can do, mm-hmm. it can make so many kinds of wines. Um, you know, I've tried a, a few of your Syrahs and, and I think, you know, you, you mentioned obviously the Rhone as a, as a huge influence and in a, in a preference of yours and I can certainly see that sort of um sensibility in your wines how what do you how do you view the view Syrah the Syrah you make and and, and what is that winemaking process like um as far as I mean I know one thing with Syrah is you know, it has a real kind of uh often very kind of reductive fermentation and and all that like how is making Syrah uh, uniquely challenging
1: um yeah I, I'm with you I think Syrah is one of my favorite and, and I think specifically Um, you know, Pinot Noir is a grape that I love, but there's a certain almost age that Pinot becomes pretty intense. Um, the mushroom note and the dirt and that kind of coming through when you age that out can be really beautiful. It's very subtle. Syrah in my, in, on the other hand, as it, I own, for me, it's the best is when it's like 20 years old, because it's got this funk that starts to come through that, um, just really locks in for me. And so I've always really loved, um, how it evolves. And like you said, the styles it makes, um, You know, look, you know, you can make a really lovely, light, very pretty, uh, um, thin maybe is the wrong word, but definitely a bit, uh, a a bit, um,
0: let's say delicate, (laughs) delicate.
1: Yeah. Version of saran. Absolutely. You can do all these. In fact, I would say probably the first straw I ever made because I kind of followed a lot more of the same steps as I did on, on Pinot. It, It was that way. And it was, it's lovely. Um, what I've kind of adjusted over the years is, as I always kind of say, like, things like pressing, you know, Syrah, like you can kind of go after it, you know, Mm -hmm. you can, you know, it kind of wants to be punched up a little bit. It, 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 oxygen is, becomes its best friend. And so you really have to think about how you do punch downs on a, on a higher frequency. And, you know, um, I find that my straws actually also just like take off on their ferments, uh, and really run hot if I don't kind of like try to keep them in check. and so there's a few things like that. But again, it goes back to style, which is I don't mind a little warmer on the ferment because I'm basically trying to push the wines into their secondary stage. Mm-hmm. I, I personally want to see uh, that moment when the fruit's starting to come down and the secondary notes are starting to climb out of the wine. So the sooner I can kind of push it in that direction, um, I feel great about. Um, and so you know, giving it a bit more oxygen on the upfront, even giving it, and then for me, giving it longer in barrel is a way to kind of get to that magic kind of space. So, you know, I think it's, you're right. I think it can, it can get reductive. I, I mean, the other thing is like, I also personally, like I, uh, I, I, for me, it's like a Syrah that doesn't, it's a, it's a really high VA grape. Like, yeah. so VA is always going to be there. So you're always going to have a bottle of acidity. You're always going to have a bit of that you know, acetone and kind of sharpness that comes through. um, For me, that's just part of it. And I don't really see it in Syrah uh, as a fault the way I would in probably my other wines. So, um, you know, I I just released like a a reserve Syrah from our 2012 vintage, big, hot, you know, massive 15% alcohol. This thing's a big monster. I did no adjustments on this wine. And then I gave it three years in the barrel. Mm. Clearly there's VA in this wine. Like, I mean, it comes in pretty high already just from ferment. Um, and for me, that's awesome. Like I, I love that note. I can, I can appreciate how some people will, they will taste that and not think it's necessarily as clean as they want. Um, and so, you know, that's again, goes back to why I have other people's wines on my menu, you know, to be like, that's fine. Um, but for me, I, I really, I kind of embrace those, what I would call like base characteristics that, uh, when I think about, you know, opening a, early nineties, you know, cornas or, or having a hermitage, you know, it's like those kind of notes come through, you know, and of course the soil will make theirs very unique compared to our soil, but it's, uh, in the end, I'm looking for that kind of through line, uh, that says like, yep, that's Syrah. Like that's got that, that kind of meatiness and savory, you know, kind of note in there.
0: Yeah. And I mean, there's, to me, like Syrah is one of those varietals where if I don't know it's Syrah, someone's probably done something wrong. Um, yeah. You know, either the, the the plantings are not right or the winemaker is, you know, I don't know, doing too much or, or maybe not enough, but probably yeah. too much. Um, and I think that's really interesting because I think, you know, one of the – I think one of maybe the advantages of, of some of the Syrah in Oregon, in my sense of it, is that because there's less um, – a little bit less history of it like one of the challenges yeah. i think washington winemakers faced with syrah is there's such a legacy of people in 15 20 years ago trying to make syrah like cabernet sauvignon and really yep. treating it essentially the same you know making similar picking decisions making similar sort of vinification and aging decisions and then you just sort of end up with something that's i guess vaguely syrah like but is sort of just it's like cab but not as good because it doesn't have the right. tannic structure it that cab to, has
1: take on like a blended red wine yeah. kind of it's like
0: yeah. And it's like you know, if you want like, you know, ripe, high alcohol, you know, sort of whatever easy to drink but not very interesting wine. But to me, like that's that's not what I mean, that's not what Syrah is meant to be. That's not what I want. And yeah. And fortunately, you know, I think we've seen a big shift away from that, but it takes time and then there's still people making um, the the that kind oh, of yeah. bigger style of Syrah here for sure. So what's the what's the wine scene in in Portland like, especially when you get outside of Pinot Noir? What what excites people who are just out there drinking? And and, and I mean, you mentioned <clears throat> natural wine earlier, and and that is a let's say I like you have some some mixed feelings about it. I'll, I'll save yeah. my my natural wine <laughs> rant for another time, maybe in Same. person. But uh, but it is really you know it, it, it's certainly my understanding. Um, you know, not being there, but visiting pretty regularly that, that, uh, that the, the Portland wine scene is, is is a unique thing, obviously influenced by the proximity of all the wine production. But, but what's it like?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I think that one of the things that has always, really surprised me is, you know, you always kind of fear like when you're especially putting on other wines and stuff you're going through and you're, you know, tasting is that you can over index when you, when you're in the industry for too much and get really into the esoteric. And what I found is I've been really surprised at like how receptive everyone is uh, to, to be trying. And I think some of it is, there's a bit of, a, I wouldn't say there's necessarily, you know, fatigue, but definitely, you know, if you live in the city, like you want to be trying other stuff too. And so I think there's, everyone is really open to um, what do you got and where's it from and what is this? And they're really curious about what's happening. Um, you know, I think that the um, the market um, is, is um, I think it's, again, like we're, we're at a kind of an interesting phase of like when they come in, um, it's a really interesting kind of two camp problem, right? One camp comes in and they're like, oh yeah, I just want to taste your pinots because they came to Oregon probably on a tour and they're, or they've come out and they're that's why they're here. This is, this is where they buy their pinots. They buy their cabs and they buy their bigger stuff from other parts of the world. Then there's this other camp, which is like, oh, cool, you do a Pinot. I want to try everything else. <laughs> um, and they want to get more of that survey of like trying to get a sense of like what's really being done here. Um, what I find interesting is the urban makers. Um, you know, we have a thing called the PDX Urban Wineries. And, you know, Seattle has a similar kind of trade organization, and so there's like 14 in the group at this point. Um, and it's hilarious when we get together because it's it's so funny that there's like two or three, only two or three that really are pouring Pinot. Everyone else is pouring something completely different. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, again, that's that push-pull of, like, if we are in the valley, of course we have to have Pinot. There's just no way around that. You can definitely sneak in your Syrah, your Tempranillo. You can sneak in, you know, your Cab Franc, perhaps. Um, You can do your whites. But, um, again, it goes to, like, that's why they drove down there. In the city, you've got that interesting mix of people are already a little, like, um, what is this? What does this mean you're an urban winery? So they're already kind of open to the interpretation. On top of then you have regulars. You have people that are in the local community that, that are always looking for something new. And they're treating you, at least us, they treat us because of, the, because of cereals very much like a trusted source uh, wine bar. That they, They'd be like, okay, what are we trying? You know? And what should we be looking for?
0: So what, what have you been excited by, uh, sort of in the world of wine lately, um, uh, maybe stepping outside of Oregon entirely?
1: Hmm. That's a good one. Um, well, I think the stuff coming out of, of Canada right now, the Okanagan is, is like really been intriguing. Um, I've been the, the every time I kind of head up North, I keep trying, um, different labels to kind of see what they're up to. Um, you know, obviously Pinot, I think is going to be, their kind of, benchmark for a while from the from just the the season but i've i have to say i've tried a couple of syrahs up there that i was really surprised of the depth that they've been able to get i um, will
0: i will say to echo that the single best probably the single best non uh roan syrah i've ever had in my life i had in in uh, Kelowna, uh this last year mm, so nice yeah do you remember who that was? I do. I do. I'm trying to decide if I want to say it on. Android. Okay. Okay. No, no, but, on. We'll uh, talk about no, that later. Yeah. Because um, I just it was. Stay yeah. Tuned. So
1: yeah. It's. Uh, but I agree. So I think like that's the region that I'm. I'm always really excited to kind of uh, keep track of. Um, you know, and then and then I think in a similar way. I, I, you know, I think um, uh, it's it's like English. Uh, Champagne, you know, it's English sparkling. Um, I think it's going. You know, everything's predicting that it will become champagne. It will take over as far as uh, as the grower from a growing standpoint of like from a climate standpoint. uh, As as all the predictive models kind of keep showing that everything's going to be getting warmer and moving further north. Um, The stuff that's come out of there, there's some that are just they're just great. They're they're breathtaking. And when you and I don't know about you, but being there even just 15 years ago, drinking sparkling was terrible just terrible um so the leaps and bounds they've they've come and you know now people are paying attention and starting to buy land over there uh as a hedge bet you know uh, coming out of the Champagne region you know so i think it's another region that i'm excited about. it's really hard to get our hands on some of the stuff um because a lot of the really good people are not really exporting or have the volumes but it's uh, well, it's also but, tough
0: because it's so expensive i mean that to so, me is the big barrier for english yeah. sparkling to this point is like it's a scale Even problem. If, yeah, and one well, and just well, and it's also, you know, to this point my understanding and and I've only tried a couple and and it's really just been sort of like, oh, on a whim here someone has this. But like the the big problem I've seen or I'm as I'm aware of it with English sparkling is, you know, no one no one's making a lot of it and the people right. who are making it are making it and saying we are making something on par with champagne, so we're going to charge what they charge in yep. champagne. And it's like, uh, I mean, maybe, but You know, you you're not champagne, at least as far as reputation and history, and and maybe you. I mean, if you want to, if you want to create a global presence, I don't know. Maybe just being English. Well, but I I
1: think is, I think, but I think again that that just kind of gets into the history of how wine regions are founded, right? I mean, you look at California; they did a similar. You know, again, it's always like take on the, the the establishment. And price yourself often at the exact same level, which is to kind of set a tone. Um, you know, whether whether your blended meritage is as good as, a, as you know, Chateau Margot uh, is always very debatable. Um, and so I I understand what they're doing. And I think you see that, that happen with a lot of regions. And uh, I don't think they're being radically different. I think, again, it's if they can start to get their foothold, they can start, like, winning those awards and winning the taste offs That will allow, I think, a more of an influx of Capital and planting which will I think will then start to ease some of those things. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so I think it's a I think it's a timing problem like right now. I think you're right We're looking at a very young region and so it's real expensive and very elite in that way But what you when I have had the chance to try it, which like you said, it's not been that often I have been really in, in, like encouraged by how well it's advancing and so I go wow This is some really nice stuff and I'm excited to see where it goes, um, you know over the next 10 15 years
0: yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I think you know, obviously, people are looking. You know, the the two places you talked about are both quite northerly for wine production, mm-hmm. um, and obviously, I think that's um, that's that's not a that's not a coincidence. No, um, it's it's something of a of a potentially very worrying trend. Which uh, again, not really the scope of this podcast, but um, <laughs> I would say what's interesting to me too is I just I, I, beyond um, sort of more northerly climates. I've also been really interested in seeing kind of the. Um, the the real emergence into the sort of modern winemaking of a lot of what's been going on in Eastern Europe I just mm-hmm. I think you know we have you have places I mean Hungary is the most obvious example to me but but you have you know sort of all of that part of the the world the sort of former Iron Curtain and all that where you have this incredible combination of you know a couple of of decades of uh, of capitalism and you know the ability now of of wine regions because of how much knowledge is out there how much technology is out there to really um, go from making essentially complete garbage industrial wine to making really, really good wine in, you Mm -hmm. know, a decade, um, if not shorter. I mean, you know, I I was up in, to come back to BC, I was up in BC a decade ago and Mm -hmm. the quality of wine there was, I mean, it was, it's just complete night and day, you know, they have gone, they've gotten, not everyone, but so many of the wineries there have gotten, um, you know, so much better in the last, you know, four or five years, I think, um, and that's and continue to to really push the quality level high and and what's great is you know now as those, as wines as more wine from more places is available it creates not only i think a market but it creates real um some impetus on those wineries to really up their their production quality because they they have, to be able to stand you know on two feet in that global market you have to, you have to be to making good wine for the most part.
1: Yeah, and I think again if you kind of think about it like while we can you know, debate and say it's uh, the globalization of wine has been terrible in some ways because it's made like a lot it's kind of made everything kind of this the middle it's kind of like you know a star rating system eventually everything becomes three stars because um, <laughs> it, you know it kind of just blends or on
0: or on uber 4.8 <laughs> stars i think is yeah, the, yeah, is the pretty interesting. middle exactly. ground there
1: yeah and so you know i think that's somewhat true but i also think it's allowed new regions to kind of crop up and start to make high quality wine or or at least like you know, very strong contender wine very quickly because, you know, modern sanitation, just better information, you know, all the things that in some ways were the the wild child of the 60s going into the 70s of just like process that we got better at is now like kind of made it so that any new region can kind of come online, you know, and then it's just really about figuring out what's the right thing for that region. You know, like they can make it, it's just now like, should you be making, you know, you know, a Poussard there maybe not, you know depending on where you are like but it becomes a you know an opportunity really that I agree I think you look at Croatia and, and some of those countries and like how fast they they kind of started making some really nice very affordable uh, wines
0: Yeah, and I think I mean it's also I, I do think one of the other positives is that maybe in a way that's that's changed over the last um, I don't know a few years is that it seems to me that there's a little bit more interest in in exploring, uh, sort of this, the more indigenous varietals of some of the smaller scale stuff that it's not like, Oh great. You have this great wine region. Let's rip all those vines out and mm-hmm. plant Chardonnay. Um, right. and not that people aren't still doing that, but I think there's been a little bit, you know, there's so much of those international varietals on the international market now. And I mean, you look at what that did to places like Australia and sort of this like incredible sea you know, ocean of, of wine. That's eh, kind of nondescript and, and fills a right. need, I guess, but isn't very interesting. And that the places and that places now, I think there's because there's not a demand, you know, there's not insatiable demand for some of those varietals, and there's a little bit more interest in demand for for things that are more esoteric or at least more interesting, um, be they uh, different varietals or at least older vines or or something yeah. unique. Um, you know, I I think that's great. I think that's that's a really positive step for the industry that you can modernize an industry and or a region, but that doesn't mean ripping everything out and putting in you know cab.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Cool. Well, Michael, really appreciate your time. Uh, pleasure chatting with you. Uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll touch base again, and uh, I'm sure I will see you next time I'm down in Portland.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, well, thank you for uh, for the offer, and uh, yeah, hopefully for those listening, this wasn't too boring.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah well, you know, if they made it this far, there it's that's it's true. Too that's, late. All that's, that's... Our, our little private message. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent.
1: Have a good okay. Week. Thanks, Zach. Have a good...
0: Thanks again to Michael Claypool for joining me on Disgorged. You can find his wines online at claypigeonwinery.com, or you can visit him in East Portland. As for me, you can find Disgorged on both Stitcher and SoundCloud. You can follow at ZJBall on both Twitter and Instagram, or you can find me on the web at vinetrainings.com. That's Vine with a V. Thanks again for listening to Disgorged, and cheers.